thank you for joining us tonight. Tonight, like we said, we will begin our study of the book of Galatians. Um, and we're we going to follow the pattern that we used for Romans, which is that we're going to do a quick introduction of the book to try to understand the main themes and sub-themes that the book is concerned with and just understand the layout of the book and how it addresses um, those, those, those themes to, to get to the heart of why this letter was written, which is the approach we said we wanted to use um, in our 3 Bible study. And after that, I think we would only be able to study chapter one today, but that's okay. Um, because Galatians itself is not a very long book. It has only six chapters. So I'm hoping that we can finish it by the end of the month. So this book, Galatians, was, was written to Christians in, in um, South Galatia. So what you have today as modern-day Turkey, right, in, inside modern-day Turkey, there was a group of cities that's in the north that were referred to as North Galatia, and a group of cities were also referred to as South Galatia. But I think that um, theological consensus is that the book of Galatians was written to, to that group of cities or the group of churches in the South. And um, because in South Galatia, we had places like Lystra and Derby and Antioch um, and Iconium. These are very familiar names in the book of Acts. So these were churches that Paul had visited and some he had planted by himself. This is where Christianity began in the Gentile world. And Paul is writing to them because up until Paul's missionary journeys into these lands of, of, of the non-Jewish people, of the Gentiles, as the Jews call them, Christianity was still majorly a Jewish religion. Christianity was something that began in Jerusalem. In fact, Jesus had told his disciples or his apostles in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 that they should begin in Jerusalem. The problem was that they didn't only begin in Jerusalem, they stayed in Jerusalem. And to an extent, um, it made sense for Jews to come to the faith because Christianity was the natural completion of Judaism. Judaism is, a, is, a, is, is the religion of the Old Testament and it is filled with promises and prophecies that are looking forward to a specific character or personality in history to fulfill those promises. And so Christianity made sense to the Jewish people based on the um, background and context they had about what God had said in history. It was a natural fulfillment of those words for, for, like for them. Um, and of course, the problem that this created is that when the gospel began to spread to the Gentiles, um, it became difficult for those Jewish believers to properly delineate what it is that made the Christian faith different from um, what they had in Judaism, if it was just um, another version of Judaism, or if it was totally different. And it was for this reason that God called Paul. And what was happening in churches like Galatia, which you're going to see as we read the book, is that the thing with um, Jewish people of that time is that they were very zealous about what they believed. And so not only did they believe that um, Christianity was a continuation of the Old Testament, which, which it is in principle, they also believe that anybody who um, says that they are born again has to keep to certain rituals that were prescribed or certain works, as it were, that were prescribed in the Old Testament. 
And so if you read the book of Acts, you discover that there, there were certain Jewish preachers that followed Paul to virtually every city he went. So Paul went to um, what you might call uncharted territory. He broke the ground. He planted the church. He introduced them um, to the life of faith. And then while he was there, or as soon as he left, these Jewish preachers followed him and began to add to the simplicity of the faith and began to say that there are certain requirements of the law of Moses. And if, if you just confess with your mouth and you don't keep those requirements, then you are not really saved. And you know, not only were these guys attacking the true gospel and adding to it, like we're going to see in this book, there was also, they were also attacking Paul and his apostleship um, because of his background and because their perception was that he was on a mission to destroy Jewish heritage. And you can imagine how people react when they feel that their heritage um, is under fire or under threat by, by, um, by one of their own. Um, and it's important, like when we talk about Judaism, to understand what we mean here. So you like remember that Israel was, was in bondage in Egypt and God raised for them a savior in Moses who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Um, he was like a, he was a prophet to them. He was, he was like a king to them. And Moses downloaded what they had as their constitution as a nation. Some of the practices that God had ordained for them to keep as a nation, which was consummated in the giving of the law on Sinai. Um, but in the midst of everything that God had said was supposed to mark out his people, there were four particular practices that form the core of Judaism. And this is where it is in one of those practices that the contention in Galatians was. There are four main practices that you actually have to keep for you to truly be a Jew. Um, and they are the Passover because of its significance in Jewish history. Then there is kosher diet. God uh, prescribed that they should only eat meat that was prepared in a certain fashion and, and not even all kinds of meat. Um, like it depends on how the animal chooses its cord and all of that. Then there was the Sabbath. I think two weeks ago, we looked at the question of the Sabbath and how some people think that the Sabbath should be kept holy, certain days should be observed, and other people should, um, didn't think that that was the case. And then the fourth one was circumcision. And circumcision was the issue of contention here, here in Galatians. And I think that like the reason circumcision itself was such a huge factor was that um, circumcision was handed over even before the law came, right? It was handed over to Abraham and God asked Abraham to circumcise himself and his entire family and that this would be a sign between him and his seed. But like the thing with circumcision is that circumcision is not only limited to being a, a physical descendant of Abraham, Circumcision is also limited to being male because this, like the covenant God gave Abraham was, was, um, was, was focused on his male lineage primarily because it was from that male lineage that God intended to bring the savior. And so this is why you read things in Galatians like in Christ Jesus, there is no male or female and circumcision does not profit anything because this is the issue that Paul was um, dealing with in, in Galatians. It was a question of should Christians who are Gentiles and non-Jewish now also be circumcised in order to complete their salvation? 
And I think that if you if we bring it home to our contemporary times, in their time it was circumcision. But all through the history of Christianity, I think what we have seen, especially in what you might call orthodox or traditional Christianity, what you have seen is that inability to draw the line between what belongs to the old covenant and what belongs to the new covenant. So even though circumcision was the issue at that time, in our time there are different issues. And, and the question always arises that how much of the old covenant should we bring into the new covenant, right? Um, and it might seem like a trivial question at face value, but the reality is that what the answer you have to this question is, is going to impact um, like what you believe and the outcome of what you believe, right? Because anybody who understands the old covenant understands that um, everything that God did in the old covenant was supposed to minister life. And the old covenant had curses in it so that the Bible says that cursed is anyone who does not continue in the words of the law. And what it means is that the pass mark for the old covenant was 100%. And it, all, it naturally raises the question that if you're going to import circumcision or Sabbath or kosher diet or Passover, on what basis are you choosing those for? Because according to that covenant, you have to import every single thing. If you want to be justified on the terms of that covenant. And so the reality is that if you apply some parts of the old covenant laws, you invariably have to apply all of them in order for you to be correct. If we take our Pentecostal settings, for example, and this is not um, some kind of veiled criticism, but this is just a clear appraisal. One of the things that we have imported, almost like we have imported it without anybody thinking about it is the, is the issue of titan. Now, before you think I want to preach against tithing, by God's grace, I pay my tithe. <laughs> and I've been doing so right from secondary school, right from the lunch money that my mom used to give me. And I don't intend in any foreseeable future or life to come to stop tithing. But you see, tithing itself, especially the way that we preach it, because every time people talk about tithe, they always quote Malachi. Titan itself as a principle is something that is rooted firmly, at least the way we preach it is something that is rooted firmly in the old covenant. Because in Malachi, he was telling them that there are certain blessings and there are certain curses of not paying tight. And a lot of times when we read Malachi chapter three, the, like we read the blessings and we don't realize that um, there are also curses attached to not keeping any parts of the old covenant. What we have in the new covenant is the principle of giving, which you can also express in the form of tithing, right? Because the Bible says that Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek of the tents that he had. And Abraham did not pay tithes to, to Melchizedek so that he can be blessed by Melchizedek. Melchizedek blessed Abraham, and then Abraham gave him a tithe of all. So you see that the order is, re is, is reversed. In the new covenant, it is God who does the blessing. And our titan, our giving, is a natural response to that love that has been poured out on us. That's why the principle of giving in the New Testament is with cheerfulness. God doesn't want, God doesn't want your money if he doesn't yet have you. In the old covenant, if you actually paid your tithe, you have fulfilled your contract with God, regardless of whether your life, the rest of your life, was aligned with the will of God. But in the new covenant, your money makes no difference to God if your heart is not aligned with him. Um, and so God wants our 
devotion to him first before our money. And so the principle is with cheerfulness and with simplicity because we're not necessarily giving so that God would double what we're giving, even though God in his, in his benevolence often does that. But we're giving because he first gave to us. And, it, and the reason why Paul is very opposed to this kind of mixed thinking of old covenant realities plus new covenant realities is that, like we read in Philippians, nobody had tried to keep the law more than Paul. And he had seen the amount of suffering, perhaps, it had brought into his life. In fact, I think he had seen the futility of making the attempt to be justified by this set of rules. Because what's going to happen to you is that you're going to do your very best and constrain your life to the best that you know. And when all is said and done, there's still something that you missed out on. It is a futile way of life. And so in the book of Galatians, Paul has a Paul has a frustrating tone. In fact, some of the things he says are very, sound very brash. <laughs> and if you read Galatians, it's one of those books that you know that, okay, this book is not for children because Paul uses some very graphic um, imagery at some point in the book to describe those who are peddling um, the doctrine of circumcision. Um, and Paul's goal is to establish that, is to establish the basis of salvation. And for us to look at this, um, like for us to look at how salvation comes, right? There are four possibilities that we have. The first one is that salvation can come by works alone, right? And if we look at the principle of works, you realize that this is the foundation. This is the mantra of virtually every other religion that exists, especially Eastern religions. You know, like you read about Chinese or Japanese monks who go through um, very long spells of self-denial and even self-affliction just to arrive at some kind of discipline. It's the same old religion of works, which is that um, we can find favor with God or we can earn favor with God by our activities, by fasting and praying and you know, giving alms and punishing ourselves in a way to end favor with God. That favor with God is bound to what we do or we do not do. And the thing is that this kind of gospel is very appealing to our human sense of pride and achievement. It makes sense to tell somebody who feels like he's sufficient in himself. It makes sense telling him that, you know what, you just need to do this, 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 and that. And then you'll find some kind of inner peace with God. But if you follow those very closely in the book of Galatians, you'll find out that this kind of religion or this kind of um, faith, if you like, <laughs> it falls into the second category that we talked about in Romans chapter 2, which is um, those who justify themselves. And like we have said earlier, if you decide that you want to be justified by works, there's no problem, except that the pass mark for works is 100%. That's the pass mark for works. There's nothing, if you get 99%, according to the law itself, you are cursed if you do not continue in every single thing. So the other 99 didn't matter because it's just like if, if somebody, you know, kills someone or commits capital, like capital offense, and is taken to court, and then your argument in court is that he has lived for 60 years and for 59 years of his life, he did good things. <laughs> and this is the one thing that he did wrong all his life. You see, at that point, it makes no difference because the pass mark for the law is 100%. So you either keep all of it or you have broken the law. 
like I always say, like, like the law is like that, it's like a beautiful necklace, right? A necklace is useful as long as all of its parts is together. And it's beautiful and it's complete as long as all of its parts are together. If you decide that, oh, there's one very insignificant part that nobody's seen in the necklace and you decide to cut it off, you no longer have a necklace. Everything comes apart. That's what the law is. Another very popular um, alternative to salvation is works plus faith, which is what happens to us when we grow up in religious settings, is that um, we grow up in places where we see people praying, we see people maybe fasting, we see people doing some kind of spiritual activity, and we just grow up in that setup, or we just join that setup, expecting that um, by virtue of our natural participation in these things, that we will find favor with God. Um, yeah, and this is what happens, like with denominational Christianity. Like some people feel that the basis of their correctness before God is that their denomination is the purest version that, that exists. So that's why you, you see all kinds of denominational infighting just to maintain a certain purity of doctrine with the assumption that if our doctrine is the most intellectually plausible or correct, then that this by itself gives us some kind of right standing with God. So there is some element of faith there, but its foundation is works. Works is still its foundation. And of course, you know that um, God rejects anything that does not come from the spirit, like we're going to see in Galatians. This was the case of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, before God sent him help. Remember that Cornelius, God, like, like the Bible itself had a great testimony about Cornelius, how he did, he gave arms, he was a devoted man. In fact, he was praying to God. But God had to reach out to him in mercy and tell him that none of these things you're doing is sufficient to save you. I want you to send for Peter, for him to lead you to the knowledge of Christ. Um, and you see, the problem with works or, or practices, religious practices, is that they are not rooted in, in, in reality. And so when like any faith that is based on the foundation of this kind of works is going to be shaken when serious questions are raised by atheists, for example, about the verity of that faith, because there is no life in the bearer of the faith that gives testimony to the fact that, that the works that they are doing have value beyond this earth. You see, some people spend a lot of time arguing about the Lord's table, communion, for example. You know, is this bread and is this wine really the Lord's body? Or is it not the Lord's body? Or is it symbolic? <laughs> but if you look at Paul's language about the communion, he goes beyond, the, beyond whether it is symbolic or whether it is really the Lord's bread. And he says, what matters is that it's the reality. Jesus said, this is my body. When he said, this is my body, he was not referring to the bread he was referring to the reality. And even if you eat communion from today till tomorrow, <laughs> and you are not part of the reality. Like we've seen before, God is not compelled to honor that kind of faith that is based on works, that thinks that it's, it's, um, it can be saved by works. The other alternative is faith with works. So, so you begin in faith, but then you're told that for you to continue in faith, you have to keep certain works. Now, it's at this point that I have to make um, um, a delineation of what works means in Galatians. Because in Galatians, you read the works of the law, and you also read the works of the flesh. 
Um, so the works of the flesh, which we are, which we are going to see when we do Galatians 5, is what the, like the scripture calls dead works or the unfruitful works of darkness. It's the thing that all of us produce as a result of our fallen human nature, the works of the flesh. The Bible also has something called good works because someone who has been paying attention would point me to James chapter 2, verse 17 and 20, where James says that faith without works is dead. The works is referring to there is a different works from what Galatians is referring to. Galatians is referring to the works of the law. In fact, that phrase, the works of the law, probably appears only in the book of Galatians in, in the entire New Testament, or maybe one, one or two places in Romans, Romans 9.32, I think, and somewhere else. But Galatians is the main place where you see that phrase, the works of the law. And the works of the law refer to the things we have mentioned above, right? Which are pass like observing the Passover, um, keeping the Sabbath, that a particular day must be used for worship, um, um, also circumcision, which was the main issue in Galatians. And of course, if you bring it into contemporary times, right? Like I've interacted with some Orthodox Christian, Christians who believe that if you are not partaking of what they call the sacraments, if there is no official priest in a particular setting that operates as, as um, the, the continuation of Jesus's apostolic apostolic lineage, then whatever Christianity you're practicing is false. That's how the Orthodox think about we Pentecostals. And even though we think the opposite <laughs> about them. So this is what it means to have faith, to begin on the foundation of faith, but then to want to continue on in the foundation of works. And Paul really deals with this um, very strongly um, in Judaism. And the problem with this approach is that it nullifies the principle of grace. This is what Paul showed that grace and works are exclusive to each other. And he's going to systematically show us how this is the case. And in all of this arrangement, the thing that is at stake is, is called the glory of God. If, if the glory of God was not at stake, then works would have been part of the means for our salvation, right? But because who takes the glory is ultimately more important to God than what happened. God, God rejects and refuses anything whose origin, whose ek, like we saw two weeks ago, or whose source is from the flesh or from self-effort. And so the only option, the only alternative left is that salvation is by faith and faith alone. And what Paul is going to show us in Galatians is that this interpretation of salvation is universal. So it doesn't just relate to a particular tribe or group of people doesn't just relate to a particular gender who, because only men could be circumcised. Um, and it also agrees with the promise of God to Abraham, <laughs> that, that, that the promise of God to Abraham was to his seed, not to his seeds. And so the promise of God was fulfilled in Christ. And so Christ is the one who offers salvation. Um, yeah, and his main point about the distinguishing thing about salvation by faith is that it begins in the spirit. You know, the popular scripture, Galatians 3, verse 1, who has bewitched you, oh foolish Galatians. You began in the spirit. It begins in the spirit. It continues in the spirit. The only work that is required in salvation by faith is the work of believing. The work of believing. If you remember Romans chapter 1, the 16 to 17, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God's salvation to all who believe to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith 
to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. It is believing from first to last. That's what faith to faith means, that you believe today, you continue to believe tomorrow. Your faith ends where your believing ends. And this is the work that God requires of everyone who comes to him. And it is this, this route of salvation that stands Christianity out. Is this route of salvation that leads to true liberty? Because Paul is going to examine in Galatians the relationship between legalism, which is the salvation by works, um, license, which is the accusation that some of his um, detractors were placing at him, that if you remove the works of the law, then you're creating a lawless and lascivious people. And then liberty, these three L's. Legalism, license, and liberty. And it is only in the gospel, in the true gospel, that true liberty is found. And when it is understood correctly, you find that the gospel that God unveiled through the life of Paul is a compelling solution. The gospel is so compelling that if you truly understand its power, you would, you would want to go out tomorrow and share it with everyone else. Okay, that was a lot, but I just wanted to run through the introduction to Galatians before I open it up for us. Um, do you have any feedback from like to this or any questions? Do you need clarity somewhere? Or you just want to make a contribution also to this? To this. Hi, Josh. Sorry. Um, I've been uh, doing stuff. I don't know. Today is a very complicated day. But when you were talking about, uh, you know, prayer, you know, and it being likened to that, it can be likened to works. Is that what you said? Um, I was like, okay, because I was having, when I was unwell, I couldn't pray. And I felt very, very, very bad that I couldn't pray. So I was talking to a friend of mine and, he, you know, she was like, if you were feeling bad that you couldn't pray, then it is not grace anymore. It's now works. It means that you're putting in it, it means that you are looking at your own effort. You're looking at your own um, will in the place of prayer or something like that. And that is counter to grace. But, you know, that part of the Bible that says, and he that comes to God must believe that he is, and he is a road of them that diligently seek him. I don't think it is possible to be diligent without being purposeful. So I'm wondering if, you know, works comes to play in here, if I'm missing the point. Because it really got me thinking, am I working in grace or is it works? Is it am I feeling guilty because I felt it was a work thing, you know? I'm wondering if you can help to yeah. clarify my answer. Yeah, thanks, Steph. That's a very good one, right? And I think it's a classic question, which is at the end of the day, what is the relationship then between faith and works? Which is why I try to delineate what works Galatians is concerned about here. Galatians is concerned about the works of the law primarily, and it's also concerned about dead works, which we're going to see in chapter five, because they are good works also, and good works are a result of faith, right? So it's, the answer to your question though, is to ask yourself, why am I praying? And this is something that we very easily get wrong as Christians, especially in our zeal to be justified before God. Why am I praying really? Um, am I praying so that I can be justified before God that I prayed? <laughs> or am I praying because I'm justified? 
Another way to phrase the question is, why am I laboring for God? <laughs> am I laboring for God so that he will bless me? Or am I laboring because I'm blessed? <laughs> you know, in our day and time of high spirituality, we always talk about um, laboring to enter. But if you, look, if you look for where that laboring to enter is in scripture, what you're entering is rest. And in fact, the way unbelief expresses itself is in words. This is, the, this is the message that Abraham's life teaches us about Hagar. You know, Ishmael is an example of unbelief because Ishmael was works. Ishmael was, God has spoken. Let me shall do something, right? According to my own wisdom. Um, but our, our labor is not, is not because we are looking for rest. Our labor is to enter the rest that has already been given to us. The reason we pray is not so that we can be accepted before God. The reason we pray so that is because we know that we're already accepted. One way to measure this in your life is to read the story of Cain over and over again and allow it to affect your heart. Because on, the, on face value, two people came to offer sacrifices to God. But it just happened that one person's sacrifice was rejected. And look at what that triggered in him. It triggered jealousy. It triggered anger. And it's important to ask ourselves, like, if God doesn't give me what I'm praying for, what's going to be my reaction? If I pray for 12 days and God doesn't heal me, what's going to be my reaction? That is going to open us up to the real intents that is in our hearts. So that's where the difference lies, right? Why am I praying? Am I praying so that I can be pleasing to God? Or am I praying because he has already accepted me? Does that make sense to you, Steph? Yeah, much sense. Thank you. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for raising that 